Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Economists are always very, very suspicious of survey data. We look at what people do, not what they say. Um, but this is a clue that something important is going on. It's not just that like people are having one child and then they're like, oof, not for me, too much work, right? And then changing their minds. It's that even women who don't even have a child, right? are still missing their fertility ideals. So there's something else going on. There's something um, definitely worth looking into. It's not just like, a, oh, I changed my mind. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be um, in Austin uh, today. It's my first time, so it's great, great to visit. And I'm just gonna um, quickly check that the, so this isn't quite lining up, but that's okay, I can just scroll. Um, so, um, okay. Uh, so today I'm gonna discuss some really recent research that I have on the fertility gap and economic freedom. Um, my co-author is Lyman Stone, so he's a demographer. So um, he's contributing um, some of the data, which we'll get into in a little bit. And I'm uh, looking at fertility and the fertility gap from the economic perspective. And by recent research, I mean we were working on it earlier this week. So I'm really looking forward to any feedback uh, that you'll have. My plan is to talk for about 30 to 40 minutes, um, and I'd love to open up for Q&A after um, and have a, a real discussion going because, again, like I said, this is a work in progress. Um, so um, I wanted to motivate this, this uh, presentation by thinking about why an economist would care about fertility to begin with. Um, economists are known for focusing on, on money, on inflation, unemployment, maybe you know, law and econ contracts, things like that. Um, but why is fertility really important from the economic perspective? Um, and so to answer this question, um, just three, three main points. The first one is that people are the ultimate resource. I'm taking this phrase from Julian Simon, who's um, really a big hero of mine. He's an economist um, as well. And, and he basically uh, helped show the economics profession. Um, and I'll talk about more. I'll talk more about him in a second. But he basically um, did a lot of empirical work to show the economics profession that people and population growth is actually integral to economic growth and that these two things are not at odds with each other um, inherently. And so um, people are the ultimate resource. It's really ideas which, which lead to technological progress, which then generates economic growth, right? It's not something about like capital or it's not something about land ownership, right? It's really actually the human person. Um, the fact that we don't have just hands to work and mouths to eat, he would say, but we actually have minds to think, right? To think of ways to do more with less which is um, how we move forward as a society, increased standards of living. Um, so um, a really good example of this, one I really like from the literature on immigration, is, um, is the research that shows how not only do immigrants who move to a new country, um, they're more productive, more creative. They um, Usually this is measured by how many patents they file. So they 
file more patents, right? They're really thinking, thinking ideas and able to see things in a new way, right? By being in a new culture. Um, but also the native population in the country receiving immigrants, um, we see upticks in, in patents um, and, and uh, new businesses and things like that, right? Because there's also this interaction between people. So population growth is really cool and special from the economic perspective. It's as close to a free lunch as we get um, in, the, in this sense because it also introduces diversity, right? Because no, uh, it's not a replication process, it's also a diversification process, which is important um, when we think about um, combining ideas in a new way. Um, recent Nobel laureate Paul Romer has also done a lot of work on this topic as well. Um, the second point, more pragmatically speaking, um, we care about fertility because policymakers care, care about fertility. So um, a lot of, and actually I should say, um, firms and industries really rely on specific age structures. So um, I'm thinking of like here, Social Security is a great example, right? The program is designed with a specific dependency ratio, meaning a specific number of workers per uh, retiree in mind. And so if fertility changes, right, especially if we have a situation like we have in China or in Japan with declining populations, um, and most countries um, that we'll be talking about today, developed countries, um, are, are facing aging populations. Um, this will have an impact on the types of industries that they're, they're able to sustain. They're probably not going to be very labor intensive. Labor is becoming more scarce. And then also um, with this sort of social programs that you can sustain with, with that kind of tax base. So there's a pragmatic reason. And then I wanted to bring back in Simon. Um, this is one of my favorite quotes, and it, it's from his, his magnum opus called The Ultimate Resource. And essentially, economists care about fertility, they care about population growth, because people do. And it's going to help us understand the world better if we understand right, why people care about population growth and, and look at it from this more personal angle. Um, and I think uh, Simon's life's uh, sort of career arc, his, his life story is a really good um, uh, sort of narrative or it's a good sort of almost a symbol analogy of where the economics profession has moved. So maybe you've heard of Malthus before and, and neo-Malthusian ideas, right? The idea that population growth is, is um, dangerous and, and concerning in, in some ways. And, um, and basically what, what Simon did is when he uh, first became an economist, he was uh, advising um, USAID, so sort of international development um, programs through the federal government on how to promote contraceptive use in African countries specifically. And, um, and he was having a lot of trouble with this. Like people just didn't, he had a background in marketing as well, people just didn't want to like consume more contraception. And so um, he's going to present his findings and is pretty frustrated in Washington DC one day. And he walks by the Vietnam Memorial and he has this epiphany. And he, and he says, this is like his, his recollection of it. What business do I having to have trying to help arrange it that fewer human beings will be born, each one of whom might be a Mozart or a Michelangelo or an Einstein, or simply a joy to his or her family and community, a person who will enjoy life, right? So this idea that like there's obviously, we want to recognize an intrinsic value. Um, here as well when we're talking about fertility. And so then he devotes the rest of his life's work, and I really encourage you to check it out, such a, such a fan um, of this economist, um, to uh, looking at empirically, like really, really studying rigorously how population growth does influence economic growth, right? Trying to understand that relationship. Um, so 
now I want to uh, just go over some recent trends. We're going to look globally first, and then we'll look more specifically at the United States, which is where our data draws from. Um, so global, global fertility trends, uh, this graph, it, it actually isn't, isn't showing at the bottom, but this is from the Institute for Family Studies, um, another great resource uh, for a lot of um, sort of uh, studies like this. Um, my co-author, Lyman Stone, is tracing out the average total fertility rate, which is like the basically expected fertility of the average um, reproductive age woman, and then um, contrasting this with the average fertility ideal. So we're starting to um, introduce the, the, um, the fertility gap here, which is basically the difference between ideals and actual achieved fertility. So um, there are specific surveys that have asked um, usually women, um, what, what fertility do you desire? How many children do you, would you like to have? Would you ideally have? Um, sometimes it's worded, would you intend to have? I'm going to look at a few different measures of it in a few slides. But here they're asking, okay, what is your ideal fertility right, to women um, around the world? And economists always get super excited when we see trends cross, when we see like a cross and a graph, like supply and demand, right? So here we see this, this, these lines are crossing in about 1995. And ever since, uh, average fertility ideals have been above average total fertility, right? So even globally, right, there's a fertility gap, right? So um, women are not achieving their desired or ideal number of, of births. And so um, this is important when we start to, to look at why and, and dig in specifically to the, to the countries where this gap is even larger, right? So here we see global fertility is still above replacement, right? It's above 2.1. Um, fertility ideals are also above replacement, right? But they're a little bit higher. That gap isn't, isn't huge, though. Um, we're going to see here how it's going to get bigger. So this is just the United States. These fertility trends we have, um, again, from my, from my co-author, I might just move this out of the way. Um, so these are fertility preferences in the United States specifically. They're a little bit lower than the global averages. So we see that um, historically, and I apologize, the bottom of the graph is right here, uh, 1960s, um, uh, we have a, a goal of um, over three on average, more than three children um, in a family. And then this sort of um, slowly has a, has a little bit uh, decreased to in 20, 2012 on this graph, it's 2.37. Um, some of the measures that we prefer, and I'll talk about why that is, um, we'll place that around like 2.46 uh, today. So not a lot of change over time and certainly above replacement. That's going to be sort of the key is that um, there's right, just the average woman really does you know, intend at least uh, to have two children. Um, all right, and then finally, this has become really important um, from a policy perspective. We're seeing a lot of countries, the United States included, starting to think about China included, actually, which I, I wasn't even sure I would see in my, my lifetime, um, starting to think about how they can increase births, right? Um, we can discuss maybe in the Q&A, like the, the incentives there for, for policymakers to increase fertility in their country. Um, obviously, national security is probably a pretty obvious one, um, but there are others. But um, over time, we've been seeing an, a huge uptick. This graph cuts off 2014. I promise you the trend continues. Um, 
a huge uptick in countries introducing formal pro-family policy. Um, Hungary uh, is also a notable um, country here. They've just adjusted theirs. But basically the idea is that policymakers are noticing what's going on with fertility, noticing declining fertility, um, things like that, and trying to respond with policy. Um, and that also will, will play a role in the story that we're trying to tell. So I just want to recap what we, what we went over just now with some fertility gap facts, um, just to sort of set the stage for our, our hypothesis and then our empirical analysis moving forward. So to formally define the fertility gap, it's the difference between desired or intended fertility and actual fertility. So just depending on the question wording, right? What is your ideal number of children? What is your desired number of children? Or what is your intended, right? What are your plans, right? So from an economist perspective, right? Desires, intention, or sorry, desires and ideals, this is like if you didn't have constraints, right? So you forget about your budget constraints and time constraints, right, maybe. But intentions, right, plans, this is probably taking into account your budget constraint, your time constraints, right? Other sorts of obligations that you have. So um, the intentions gap tends to be smaller. Um, I will show some data on that as well than the desired gap, right? Um, desires are usually a little bit larger than our constraints. Um, so first of all, uh, just a fact, right? The fertility gap does not seem to be smaller in countries with more generous family policies. It's really quite the opposite. And obviously this is uh, because countries that are worried about fertility are going to be implementing pro-family policies. Um, but I note this because um, this hasn't moved much over time. So these policies have been around. Um, we were just, just talking about the Soviet Union actually did introduce some policies intended to increase births towards the end of, of its sort of um, empire. But um, really these don't seem to have push the ball forward a lot. And so it's at least from an economist perspective right now, there's, there are a lot of papers being generated saying, okay, what are the effects of these policies? Do they actually increase births? Do they increase marriage rates, right? Um, how can we better understand what actually can policy can do right in this area? Um, the fertility gap is, and actually I wanna also add that um, we're relatively fortunate in the United States um, compared to a lot of the countries we'll see uh, the graph in a second, um, our fertility is remarkably high. And of course, right, we don't actually have very strong pro-family policy um, yet in this country. And so there is sort of this mismatch. Um, this is definitely something that's going on more in, in Europe. Um, number two, um, one that I find most interesting, the fertility gap is largest for women in developed countries, so like high-income countries, um, who are highly educated. And this is super puzzling from just a sort of a pure, like a just sort of step one, right, economic perspective, because these are the, the women we would expect to have the most resources at their disposal to achieve their goals, right, to achieve the fertility that they desire or intend. This is, this is confusing, right, because of all women in the world, right, we would sort of expect these women to be the, the most powerful group, quite frankly. So why, why is their gap even larger? even larger than, than other women. Um, and so there's some speculation on this um, that, that we'll get into. And then finally, three, uh, number three, excess childlessness follows similar patterns. So um, we'll see a picture in a second. Excess childlessness is gonna be the difference between the number of women who actually end up 
without having a child in their lifetime, um, minus the number of women who intended not to have children, right? Who said, yep, you know, not for me sort of thing. Um, and so this is also a very similar pattern. So if something is going on, I want to, um, you know, emphasize um, sort of like survey data. Economists are always very, very suspicious of survey data. We look at what people do, not what they say. Um, but this is a clue that something important is going on. It's not just that like people are having one child and then they're like, oof, not for me, too much work, right? And then changing their minds. It's that even women who don't even have a child, right? are still missing their fertility ideals. So there's something else going on. There's something um, definitely worth looking into. It's not just like, a, oh, I changed my mind sort of thing. Um, so I really like this graph and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna scroll down so you can see the full, the full uh, sort of picture here. So um, <laughs> this paper is actually what got me interested in the fertility gap in this research. Um, there, um, the authors are, are at the top, we can go back if we need to, but um, they basically are the ones who are first documenting, okay, the women born in the 1970s and they follow them through throughout their reproductive years. Um, here's their fertility gap, right, this cohort approach, and they're documenting the fertility gap is largest amongst these women who are highly educated. Um, and so here's just their, their um, figure for excess childlessness. Um, and it's, it's sort of shocking, and you can see the, the countries with the largest excess childlessness gaps are towards the right. Um, Greece, Germany, and Italy, Spain, and Austria, these countries will have about 20% excess childlessness, right? So it means even subtracting, so subtracting the number of women who intended, right, not to have children, right, saying, you know, this is, this is not, this is a choice I'm making, this is, I know what I'm doing. Um, uh, 20% are having, are ending up childless without intending to, right, without desiring this. So there's definitely something um, quite big going on in these countries, right, to have a 20% gap um, is, is quite large. And then, of course, it gets smaller as we go down this list. Um, uh, the United States is particularly, you know, well off um, compared to the other, compared to the other countries here. But there's definitely something going on. Uh, when, when uh, we have excess childlessness rates like this. Um, so we're going to approach the question of the fertility gap, and there is a large literature on it, and, and we're trying to contribute to it. We're going to bring in an institutional perspective. So this means basically looking at what are the rules of the game? That's sort of how economists think about institutions, right? What, what's the game that, that people are having to, to play here? And, and maybe are the rules of the game more conducive to fertility and narrower fertility gaps in certain areas? So um, just put simply, under which conditions is the fertility gap narrower, right? What are the conditions? Maybe there's something about the, just the area, right? The jurisdiction that, that women are living in and experiencing that helps them either achieve their goals or not. Um, so this is where I get to bring in economic freedom. So, um, our hypothesis is that there is going to be this link between the fertility gap that we observe in our data, and then economic freedom. And I'll talk about how we measure this um, in a second. But basically, recent work in family economics emphasizes right, one of the conditions that's super important for understanding fertility choices is work-family compatibility. 
Um, and specifically, the term here that's used, and there's some of the, some of the um, work on this, um, which, which is great. Um, the term here that's used that Golden specifically, I think, sort of coined is temporal flexibility. So um, this originally was uh, discovered when economists were trying to answer uh, why there's a gender wage gap, right? So OK, we know the answer. It's like all of these variables we're controlling for them, education, um, industry, et cetera, experience. Um, and then what's left over is this idea that women just tend, on average, to prefer jobs or types of work that allow for temporal flexibility, which means that you could choose which hours you work, perhaps choose your own schedule, right? Thinking gig work here, really, um, or just have some flexibility built into the day, right? If I need to, if I need to, I can you know, drop everything and go pick up my sick child at school. Or if I need to, right, I can go take care of my elderly mother. Or you know, there's a little bit more flexibility in these jobs. Um, of course, those are not the most high, right? These are not going to be the most high paying working 90 hours a week types of jobs, right? That's where you get those big bucks, right? Because you're literally on call for people all the time. You're, right, your life is work. Um, women tend not to prefer those jobs. They tend to sacrifice pay for temporal flexibility. And so, OK, this tells us something right, about the conditions under which women are more easily able to achieve fertility goals. Um, temporal flexibility is going to be important in, in the economy. Um, and so the ability to plan also educational choices, right? Um, am I going to go to college now, later? What is that going to look like? Um, what types of maybe vocational training do I need to get uh, licensing work for the occupation that I'm choosing, right? Hairstylist, things like this. Um, that will also play a role. And, and it, um, these types of constraints, right? So if we have like a rigid, um, uh, there's a lot of um, regulation on gig work. There's a lot of occupational licensing. There's a lot of um, just sort of like union density, things like this. Um, it's not a right to work state. It's another example. Um, uh, this is going to be especially important for women because um, we are relatively more time constrained when it comes to biology, right, for fertility. So you basically also want to pay attention to the fact that a lot of careers require upfront investment. And so those are your most fertile years, right? What is that calculus going to look like? And so um, more flexibility in a labor market, we think, is going to help, right, help this fertility gap. Um, and just to put it right, simply, economic freedom increases the degree of control that everyday people have over their lives. Right? Conceptually, that's what's going on. This is what we mean by economic freedom. And so now I want to get to how we would measure this. Right? How are we going to measure something like economic freedom? So quite luckily, there are a few indices of economic freedom uh, that have been produced. Um, this, I believe, is the original one from the Fraser Institute. Um, Honestly, like the Lord's work, um, I, these are um, economists who will go through laws, regulations, um, read just a bunch of this literature, policies, um, and then assign a score to a given jurisdiction. So states, uh, provinces, if you know, you're Canada, and then countries around the world will assign a score based on how economically free they are and, and with these specific um, uh, measures in mind. So. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to use the average score of an individual state. So we're looking at the state level, which isn't perfect, but it's, it's, getting, it's getting close, of an uh, individual state over the years 2000 to 2020. And the idea here is we want to capture as much of like a, a woman's working life and also just even like young life as possible 
um, because we there's some literature that also shows right that your experience growing up um, in your in your home and maybe your mother's fertility as well your peers fertility will also impact your own fertility so um, we're looking at sort of this experience of economic freedom enjoyed by the average woman during her reproductive years so 2020 to 20 uh, sorry 2000 to 2020 um, taking the average. Um, also, this is going to help us sort of like churn out any COVID effects and some, some other weird stuff that, that might have happened there. Um, and so finally, we're going to be using this subnational index. And so there are three areas in particular that this score is capturing. The score is capturing. And we, um, one of the extensions of our project, and I can talk more about this at the end, is we're trying to see which sub area is, is actually the most important, right, in our data. So government spending is measured by this, uh, um, by this index, and that basically is like a proportion of like, I think per capita GDP, like how, how much does the government spend in this jurisdiction? Um, how active are they? Like the percentage of public employees um, in the state um, taxation, looking at property tax rates, whether or not they have income taxes, um, other types of taxes that the state may levy, and then finally labor market freedom. So uh, regulations, um, union density, uh, minimum wage laws, the share of the population actually working in minimum wage for minimum wage, um, right? So trying to get at this idea of like, okay, how, how much control right, do, do people have over their economic decisions? So we're combining this data, this economic freedom score from the Fraser Institute um, with a, a new fertility preferences survey. Um, I think this data is super cool. Um, thanks to my co-author Lyman for, for this. And it's an online survey of um, reproductive age women in the United States. Um, we're using, I think, uh, four waves and we'll probably get to add some um, in the next couple of months. But right now we're at about 13,000 responses and we're aggregating then those then to the state level. So um, I'll show you a, a graph in a, in a little bit with the individual level responses. Right now we don't have enough to cover each state with a large enough sample. So um, we're, we're keeping it aggregated. And the particular measure that we want to use to think about the fertility gap is gonna be called our weighted happiest measure or weighted happiest measure. And so this is a, a question that I think Lyman himself designed. And I love it because there's a great economic intuition behind it. Um, it's actually capturing more of what's, what sort of actually goes on when you like plan a family than, than um, some of these more like cut and dry questions. So basically, he has respondents report how happy they would be across family outcomes of zero to six. Right, so sometimes, right, you'll have like surprise fertility or like it's a little hit and miss sometimes, right? It's not, no one's like in perfect control, right, of, of this process. Um, and so we're trying to understand, right, how marginally people are valuing different family outcomes, right? So, okay, you know, three is my ideal, but maybe I wouldn't be too upset, right? If, if it was four or if it was maybe two, I'd be really upset, right? I, I want to, you know sort of capturing some of this degree of variation, this gradation. And so um, it's a really rich measure um, uh, we discuss in the paper, right? It's actually very stable across time. Um, it's, it's, it has a lot of like neat properties. Um, so we really like this measure. And so we're gonna use this then as weights. We're gonna use the happiness scores as weights to assign at weighted happiest parity outcome. So 
it's basically just like on average, right? What is the number of children that this woman would be happiest with? It's going to be a weird decimal, right? Oh, like 2.4 children, right? Would be your ideal like happiness. Um, but again, we like it um, for, for those various reasons. And then we'll uh, subtract um, the total fertility rate, or we'll, we'll subtract that from the total fertility rate, um, which again is going to give us a good measure of what actual fertility is expected to be for these women. Um, the individual data we'll look at actually shows completed fertility. So we know that like this was their completed fertility. And then finally, we need some controls, right? So finally, we're going to try to control for a lot of things that the literature has identified as important for fertility. And we want to show, and I, I, you know, I feel strongly about this, um, that even controlling for these big influences on fertility decisions or big predictors of fertility, um, economic freedom still matters, right? There's still something that we're trying to capture with this like work, family balance, um, and, and the like. So we're going to control for the share of married households because um, uh, research has shown that, that marriage is, Marid, marital fertility um, impacts population level fertility um, quite strongly. And so controlling for, for married households, the share of married households, controlling for medium household income. So um, there's some really interesting recent research that shows that um, this long-standing relationship thought to be negative between income and fertility, right? As people get wealthier, as countries get wealthier, they lower their fertility, right? We focus on quality maybe of children, like education, investing in fewer children. Um, this long-standing relationship, and it's so exciting, this research like just came out like this past year, um, actually is, is flipped now. And so fertility is actually, in some cases, positively associated, certainly not negatively associated. In some cases, it has no association, but um, has a new relationship to income since like 1980 is really uh, what some of these, these papers are showing. And the idea here is that what's happened is that actually um, the opportunity cost of, of children from a, from a wage earning perspective has gone down with the marketization or just like the fact that you can actually outsource a lot of the cost of children. You have sort of free public education, right? Free, nothing's free, but free public education. Um, you have childcare. You have very convenient food, um, cheap, never been cheaper to clothe your children. Um, clothing prices are, are very low um, relative to average wages um, and other types, like, types of things like this. So where we actually see housing is a little bit of an issue and we can definitely talk about that in Q&A. But basically what, what some people are, are finding in the data is that this negative relationship no longer holds. Because of this though, we're just gonna try to control for fertility, right? And so I'll show in a second um, uh, what we find with the relationship between income and the fertility gap, but um, that's really interesting. And I should also say that we wanted to extract the income enhancing effects of economic freedom because it is a very strong finding in the literature on economic freedom that um, economic freedom uh, is associated with, with higher incomes. Um, we want to control for religiosity and since our data is going to be um, actually collected during COVID, so our, our numbers are 2020 to 2022, um, 
we decided not to do in attendance rates, right? Like do you go weekly to a religious service or monthly? Um, I do have another version of robustness check where we do this and the results are pretty similar. Um, but the religiously unaffiliated share we thought is just a better measure of, okay, like here's the share of the population that's just not like super religious, right? So they're not gonna be motivated, you know, by re in religious terms in their fertility. Um, and then finally, the share of foreign born, there is a, a great relation or great, a really interesting relationship between like immigration and fertility where um, not only do immigrants or, or foreign, the foreign born population, they're more likely to have higher fertility like that of their home country, which is generally higher um, than the United States. Um, but also we see in cities where there's a large influx of immigrants, um, actually, uh, highly educated women increase their fertility in response. And the mechanism here is thought to be something like um, immigrants actually make childcare or um, schools, things like this, more affordable. Um, and so you're able to outsource, again, some of the, the work of, of children, some of that, that cost um, that might be very, a very high time cost, right? If you're a highly educated, like high earning woman, um, you can outsource some of that with childcare, which is now um, much more affordable um, with you have more labor. Um, and so that should in influence fertility. So we're controlling for those effects as well. So um, not quite at the results yet. I'm going to force you to look at some summary statistics and a few graphs first. So we have our weighted happiest gap. So this is that weighted happiest measure minus total fertility, which I believe on average is 1.69 um, over 2020 to 2022. And so we see our observations N is 50, right? So we're using the 50 states. Um, so um, we see a low, the lowest, um, the narrowest weighted happiest gap, fertility gap is 0.3, is 0.3, so 0 0.3 children, right? So it's not, it's, it's positive in every single state. So in, in no state is the average woman achieving her fertility desires or her average, like her happiest outcome. Um, so that's, that's interesting to note. The median is 0.8, so almost one child, right? So women on average are about like one child off of their, their, their weighted happiest um, number of children. The maximum gap is 1.4. Um, uh, we'll have a map of the United States where we can see this uh, geographically soon. You can see where Texas is. Um, fertility intentions. So we want to also look at, um, this is one of our robustness checks, um, does the fertility intentions gap, so not measuring desires, but just actual trying to get at actual fertility plans that might take into account some budget constraints, et cetera. Um, is there still a gap? Yes, there's still a positive gap. Very, very small though. So 0 0.4 is the minimum. Median is about a third of a child, 0.3 children. Um, and then the maximum is 0.7. So still um, most women are not even having the number of children that they intend, they originally planned to have. Um, economic freedom scores also have this nice variation. So we see the lowest economic freedom, I believe this is New York State, uh, this is 4.1, right? So pretty, pretty rigid, a lot of taxes, right? Thinking just like, I always picture it as, as like a rocky, it's not very dynamic. The median score is 6.1 and then the maximum is 7.7. .7. So some nice variation in there with economic freedom across the states. Um, uh, 
if any of you have like been paying attention to like migration patterns during COVID, um, you probably have an intuition about like economic freedom in the states as well, right? So people are like leaving like California, right? Settling a you know better better states and invading Nashville where where I live basically. Um, I I love it. I love it. Um, so median household income um, we have uh, ranging from forty six thousand. This might be Mississippi. I'm not sure. Um, median is sixty two thousand. And then a maximum of 87. Um, married household share, so 46, 52, 61, again, nice variation. Religiously unaffiliated, we'll see 15% of the population up to 40%. And then the foreign born share is all the way down at 1.6 and then up to 26.6. Um, and so those are the summary statistics. So let's, let's look at a picture of what fertility desires using our preferred measure, this weighted happiest measure, looks like across the United States. You can see here, um, the darker it is, the more intensely or the more, the more children women are desiring in these states. So you'll see actually Alaska is a pretty, pretty high, um, looks like over 2.7 um, children on average um, uh, women would be happiest with there. Um, North Dakota, Maine, uh, Utah, um, and then actually, you know, sort of where you would expect, right, the South, the Midwest, we're seeing um, uh, these darker colors. Um, Vermont is particularly uninterested in having, you know, a lot of kids. This is an interesting uh, outlier. I think maybe the coloring makes it look a little sharper. Hawaii is also on the lower end um, of this, but I want to point out to every single, and I'll scroll down here to, to show, um, every single state using this measure has fertility desires that are well above replacement, right? Well above 2.1. Um, so then let's look at economic freedom across the states. And this has a little bit more of a clear pattern to it, maybe with what we know about the different regions in the United States. Um, we have more economic freedom um, in the South, maybe Midwest, um, Texas, Florida, where I come, right, Tennessee, these are pretty strong, um, pretty economically free states. Um, New York's not doing so hot, right? Alaska, California, um, they're, they're struggling a little bit more. So our raw correlations, I think this is super, um, I was very excited when I saw this. So um, I, let me adjust the screen a little bit. So we have our economic freedom score on the x-axis, and then the y-axis is two different measures, so I'm just stacking two correlation plots on top of each other. We have fertility desires at the bottom, and then total fertility rate at the top. So we see here, we can tell, okay, because the fertility gap measures basically two statistics in one. It's measuring the difference between total fertility rates and fertility desires. And so I wanted to see is it that economic freedom, like what does it have the most impact on? Which of these? Um, and so we can see here that economic freedom actually has a pretty strong positive, I think it's like 0.46 or something, pretty strong positive correlation um, with the total fertility rate. And I'll show you some more data on this uh, soon. And it's weekly, very weekly, very small, maybe negative on fertility desires. So um, it looks like you know, women in economically free states um, are more likely to have higher fertility and that this doesn't actually impact their fertility desires so much, right? As we would, you know, probably expect, right? It's not one of those big ones, marriage, religion, et cetera, right? That's gonna really 
um, uh, impact our fertility preferences, um, but that it has a strong impact on fertility. So here are our main results, our, our main table, and actually I want to get that R squared in there. Um, so our dependent variable is the weightest, weighted happiest gap. And um, right, so again, this, this measure of on average, right, how, how many children would, would this woman be happiest um, having? Um, and so our raw, or excuse me, our raw um, association is in column one. We have economic freedom is predicting statistically significantly so, a narrower gap. And so to the, to the tune of 0 0.058, which is telling us that a one point increase in your economic freedom score will reduce your fertility gap right, by this amount. Um, and I'll talk about um, the economic sort of like significance of this in the next slide. I'll interpret it a little bit more. Um, but that's a pretty economically significant amount um, uh, for, for, this, for this measure. Um, this does change ever so slightly, hardly at all, um, when we control for median household income to try to pull out those income effects on fertility. And we see that actually controlling for economic freedom, income does have this positive effect on the fertility gap. So it widens the fertility gap in the, across the states in our data. Um, and that small circle is showing it's, it's significant at the 20% level. Um, we have a super small sample, so I just wanted to include some more, more levels. Um, and then finally, column three, we have um, just a slight reduction in the magnitude of our coefficient, um, but it's still significant um, at the 10% level. And uh, we can see that even controlling for um, sort of marriage, religiosity, and immigrants in, in our, with our measures, we still have this um, negative impact, this narrowing of the fertility gap um, uh, when you have economic freedom, um, more economic freedom in your state. Um, and so just to point out, so our observations are 50. Our R-squareds are not massive, right? So we're not explaining a huge amount of the variation in the data in the fertility gap data. Um, but um, because we actually have a reduction in our R-squared with the third column, uh, we're adding a lot of variables and it's actually not giving us a lot of explanatory power um, uh, to gain. Uh, we sort of prefer column two. We think this is telling us a lot. This has the highest R-squared. It's explaining the most variation. So just to conclude, right, what are the implications? So a one-point increase in, economic, in the economic freedom score of a state is associated with a, and I'm just rounding down here, a 0 0.05 decrease in the fertility gap, which is about a 6%, more than a 6% reduction in the average fertility gap. Um, so that's actually substantial. That's actually really substantial. So to put it in perspective, if California at 4.58 for their economic freedom score enjoyed the same degree of economic freedom as Texas, which is at 7.43, so it's almost like a three-point increase, we're looking at a predicted fertility gap that's smaller by 0.16 children, right? And so this is significant because it means that now one, almost two out of every 10 women who would not be achieving their fertility goals now are, right? Because of this, this change. That's, that's the, the prediction of our, our model. Um, we have some individual level results. Um, I mentioned this, right? We're looking at completed actual fertility. So these are women's, women aged 40 to 44. And we do see this positive association between economic freedom score um, and the, the fertility gap, where the fertility gap is lower, the higher the economic freedom. Um, 
And then this is just to sort of kick off a Q&A. We have some extensions, some questions that we'd like to further investigate. Which component of economic freedom, because it's such a big measure, um, is the most important? Are we going to be um, you know, looking at the taxation, labor market regulations, or government spending, which is most conducive to a narrower gap? We have some suggestive evidence that I can maybe talk about um, in the Q&A um, that I'm still puzzling over. Um, is there some omitted variable? Always want to account for omitted variable bias, right? That is causing both economic freedom and fertility in particular to rise. Um, and then finally, can economic freedom explain why pro-family policy is generally ineffectual, right? We haven't actually seen these great results. A lot of countries are trying to like give tax incentives, right? Maybe child tax credits, et cetera, um, to having children, but there's not necessarily a lot of bang for your buck. Well, this looks like maybe is this the cheap option, right, for increasing fertility. Um, so Basically, I will conclude there, right? Fertility desires are above replacement. Fertility actually is below. So this is a, um, a really interesting, we think, um, avenue for future research. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope I didn't talk your ears off too much, but are there any questions? Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this. We can continue our programming. And of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.